Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Aaron. I have the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Wellspring. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to just get right into it. I, might want you in, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. That's where we're going to be continuing on in our journey through the Old Testament. And as you're turning there, I want to actually start by talking a little bit about Steve Jobs. Yes, so Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple and all things iPhone. I came across this uh, passage from one of uh, Steve Jobs' biography. Walter Isaacson recounts a moment in Steve Jobs' life, towards the end of his life, where Jobs begins to reflect upon like, the meaning of life and kind of why he's existed and kind of what his purpose was. Jobs said this, I'm about 50-50 on believing in God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. It's strange to think that you, you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little wisdom and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives. But on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on-off switch. Click and you're gone. Maybe that's why I never like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. Is there more to life? Is there more than just success, fame, money, and just going after your own sort of personal ambitions? Like, why have we been created? Why are we on this floating space rock? What's our purpose and design in being a part of this world? And as we come to Genesis 2, I want to invite us to consider that, that we have been created for more. We have been created with purpose and intentionality to be with God and partner with God and to work with God in God's world for his purposes. And so the first thing I want to look at today as we head into Genesis chapter 2 is that we have been created for partnership. And I'll explain what this means, but let's take a look at Genesis 2 starting in verse 5, that we've been created for partnership. The first thing here. Genesis 2 verse 5, the writer writes, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and watering the whole of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now notice a couple things. First, notice in verse 5 that there's this problem of sorts. Did you catch that in the text? That there's something missing. The text said in verse 5 that there's no man or there's no human to work the ground. Which begs the question, why, do, why does God want a man or a human to work the ground? I mean, can't God just do that by himself? Can't, wouldn't God do a much better job of working the ground apart from creating anyone else? Well, here's the thing. This is, this is going to get at one of the main themes of Genesis 2 and really into the rest of, of the Bible. That how God works in the world is going to be through humans, through his human partners. That's why God then forms the man. And how does the God form this man? Well, the text says... From the dust or from the dirt. And when the text says that God forms the man out of the dust, it's not necessarily speaking to like the biological compound of like what humans are anatomically made of. It speaks rather to the fragility and the creatureliness of humans. That's why the poet of Psalm 103, reflecting back on this passage, says this, that just as a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion on us because God knows how we are formed, that we are dust. This speaks to how God is intimately present and involved. God knows our, our fragility. God knows our creatureliness. 
And at the same time, yes, we've been formed from the dust, but we've also been infused with, own, with God's own divine breath. This speaks to the fact that God is the sustainer and giver of all life, that it's all a gift from God. That God is the one that is not this distant God just up in the clouds, far off. No, God is intimately present and involved. That God is literally, in the, in the text, getting his hands dirty, if you will, and breathing his own breath, his own life-giving power into the human. You know, I, I was thinking about this, how this, this idea of how God is so present and connected to us and with our creation. I, I was thinking about this and how little kids seem to really pick up on this. I think about my three-year-old son, Kaysen. The other day, he comes running up to me, and he, he comes up, and he's like, Dada, I'm so glad God made Adia. You know, I, I go back to him. Adia's our, our four-month-old. And I go back to him, you know what, Kaysen? So am I. And the way that Kaysen talks, the way, the, you know, the other day we were at, at the tide pools, and he was climbing on the rocks, and he tripped, and he kind of fell and landed on some of those sea anemones that were just kind of all over the rocks there. And he was a little bit frustrated and a little bit, I don't know, just kind of bummed out that he, he missed the rock, and he'd been working really hard at scaling the rocks at the tide pools. And he, he comes up to me and goes, Dada, why did God make the sea anemones? Almost kind of like, you know, blaming, like, you know, why are they there? But, but my point is, is that in Kaysen's mind, it's just so natural for him to, to think about that God is the one who is responsible for all this. That God is the one who is present and intimately involved in his creation. And sometimes as adults, and I'm, I'm guilty of this too, that it's easy to forget how present in God is to us and to our world. It's kind of like being at one of those baseball games where you have like those retractable roofs. I mean, in California, we don't have those, but back where I'm from up in Washington, Safeco Field, where the Seattle Mariners play, they have this thing called rain. And every once in a while, rain starts falling from the sky, and you can be at a baseball game, and there's like this magic button somewhere that someone pushes, and this retractable roof just slowly rolls across, and you're just completely oblivious to everything that's going on outside. I think in a similar way, there's this aspect where we can just be so focused on our own lives that we forget and forget to and recognize that God is present, isn't it? We forget, we basically close ourselves off to the heavens, so to speak. But here in this passage, what we see is God is intimately present and near to us. He knows our creatureliness. He has infused us with his own life-giving power and presence. And, in, and through this, God has desired and designed us so that we would partner with him in the world. And this is abundantly clear in verse 15 of chapter 2 where the text says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to, quote, work it and keep it. That the man here, the human here, same word in, in the Hebrew, has a purpose, has a vocation, has a calling here to work and keep the garden. See, oftentimes we have this picture of, of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 where it's like this static sort of thing where all humans got to do was just hang out in like the coolest animal park ever, like Madagascar meets Jurassic Park, and they just kind of sat around and ate great food and really didn't do a whole lot. But that's not the picture we actually get from Genesis 1 and 2. Last week we looked at Genesis 1 and God had created and called humans to image God, to represent God in the world, to rule and have dominion under God's authority in the world. And here in Genesis 2, verse 15, again, there's this vocation, there's this calling, there's this partnership to work and keep the ground. And again, it begs the question that I mentioned earlier. Wouldn't God just do a better job by himself doing this? Like, why would God want to work through humans? I mean, don't just humans mess things up all the time? 
And this gets at to one of, one of my favorite themes throughout all the scripture. Like this is, again, how God wants to work in the world. And one of my favorite examples of this is Exodus chapter 3, the, the famous story of the burning bush. Moses is there. He's encountering God in the burning bush. And God is speaking to Moses. And God is saying to Moses, I have seen the affliction that my people are suffering in Egypt. I have seen the suffering. I have seen the oppression. And I am going to come down and save and rescue your people. And as God is saying this, there's all this I language. I'm going to do this. I'm going to save. I'm going to rescue. I'm going to deliver. And then by the end of the little speech that God has with Moses, God tells Moses, I'm going to send you. Wait a second. I thought God was going to do the work. I thought God was the one that was going to lead the children out of Israel or out of, out of Egypt. But now Moses is being called? Yes. Because this is how God works in the world. God wants to partner with and work through humans. Think about in the New Testament, that famous story where Jesus is feeding the 5,000. And he miraculously multiplies the loaves of bread. And there's this little detail in those narratives where the text says that Jesus takes the bread, breaks the bread, and before it actually gets to the people who need it, he gives it to the disciples. And the disciples are the ones that give it to the crowd. Yes, Jesus is the one who multiplies the bread. He's the one that supplies the power. But he has called and invited his disciples, us, to partner with him in that work of, of spreading his news, spreading his character, representing him in this world. The point is, is that humans are called to partner with God. Again, I think about it sometimes with my relationship with my son. Sometimes where I'm trying to maybe work on a project outside or hammer something, kind of a hypothetical scenario, because if you know me, me and a hammer don't often go good together. But on the off chance that I actually do some manual labor around the house, oftentimes Keeson will come up to me and he will want to partner with me and try to hammer the nail with me or screw the little screw in with me. And is it more efficient if I just do it myself? Will I get it done faster if I just do it? 100%. But there's this tremendous joy and delight of getting to see my little son and getting to see and, and Sienna to come along and kind of hold the hammer or hold the screwdriver with me and, and do it together. And I think a similar thing happens and is representative of the heart of God. That God delights in sharing and God delights in seeing us work together with him in the world. And it brings him great joy and it, it, it speaks to this fact that we have been created for more. Not just to live for ourselves and achieve kind of our own success and kind of wonder, is there more to life? Yes, there is more to life. That we have been designed and called to partner with God, to be connected with God, and to join in his work and mission in the world. So that's the first thing, partnership. The second thing I want to talk about is God's provision. God's provision. We have been created to enjoy and experience and delight in God's provision. Now I'm going to read a, a fair amount of scripture here. Verse 8, about a ten or 7 or 8 verses here. So verse 8, Genesis chapter 2, the text says this. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed to the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. It is the, uh, the, there's the land of gold, the gold, and there's bedelium and onyx and stone are there. Verse 13, the name of the second river is the Gihon. 
And this is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, we'll talk about the trees in a second. Okay, but did you notice that, that paragraph there about the rivers? Right? There's one river that divides and flows out into four. And how many of you thought, honestly, like, that's a little bit strange. Like, why am I being told this information about the rivers? I mean, there's a lot of things that I would love to know about how God created the world in Genesis 1 and 2. And honestly, these four rivers could kind of be like a secondary thing, you know? Like, so why, am I, why are we being told this information? Well, again, notice that there's those four rivers. There's the Pishon and that's the one that has all this material, this gold, this bendulum, this precious metals. That's like perfect material for humans to use, right? To create and partner with God in the world. But then there's also the second river, the Gihon. You know, the Gihon River. And the, the text said that that Gihon River flows into the land of Cush. Now, wh- where's that at? Well, you go into Genesis 10 and other places in Scripture, the land of Cush is the land in and around Egypt. Now, the third river, the Tigris, This river flows out into Assyria, okay? And the fourth river, the Euphrates, flows out into, well, we know from geography and just the Bible in general, flows out into the land of Babylon, all right? So here's the picture that we have here. Out of the Garden of Eden, where God's life and sustenance and goodness is formed, out of this garden flows this one river that divides into four that goes out into the land of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. Now I wonder, are those three nations going to come up later in the biblical storyline? Yes, over and over again. In fact, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon are like the three main bad guys to the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. Egypt in the Exodus story is the one that is oppressing and enslaving God's people. Assyria and Babylon, by the end of the Old Testament, are the ones that come out and wipe out Israel and take them into exile. So what is this text saying? Why are we being told this information about the rivers? Well, here's the point. Out of the Garden of Eden, out of where God's provision and sustenance in creation is this one river, this life-giving water, if you will, that's flowing out and providing sustenance and life even to Israel's enemies. That God's life-giving presence, God's life-giving water is not just something for Israel and its own tribe, but God's own life-giving water is not just for me and my tribe, but for all the tribes of the world. And think about what this says about the character of our God. That our God provides living water not just for me and my own group, but for even Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. And here's the thing. This picture and this theme of God's life-giving water providing healing and sustenance in life for others, is a theme that, we know this, right, continues to develop all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and into the New Testament. You know, you think about the, one of the first times in the Old Testament where this picture of life-giving water is used is with Hagar, the Egyptian slave, and she's out in the wilderness, and she experiences and encounters God's presence at a well, and she finds sustenance in life from the water there at the well. Or then Jacob, when he's in the wilderness, and he encounters God by a well. Or Israel in general, as they're wandering out in the wilderness, God provides water from a walk, and they experience God's life-giving presence. And you continue on. Isaiah the prophet talks about God's life-giving presence like streams in a desert. Or Ezekiel the prophet talks about how from God's temple flows this stream of water that will water the dry and weary wasteland of the day. And you get to the New Testament, 
Jesus says that anyone who comes to me will never thirst. That rivers of living water will flow from him. And then by the end of the Gospel of John, when Jesus is being crucified on the cross, you get this strange little detail. That as Jesus is dying, a spear gets thrust into his side. And what comes out of him? Yes, blood, but also water. It's as if Jesus' own sacrificial death is providing the life-giving water that we all need and crave. And by the end of the scriptures, Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, we read about this tree of life and this river that's flowing out into the new creation, providing healing for the nations. This is the point. That from Genesis 2 all throughout scripture, God is the one that is providing the life-giving sustenance that we all desperately seek and need. And may I just call us and remind us, very simply in light of this, that yes, Jesus has provided the life-giving water that we all seek and crave, the provision that we're after. And so our simple response is to come to him, to come to Jesus, to position ourselves in close proximity to the life-giving source that is Jesus, our living water. Not to earn God's love. No, we have God's love. Not, not just this kind of naive optimism that says, you know what, if I come to Jesus, all my problems will be solved and I'll just have this rosy, you know, happy life. No, in spite of all of the pain and suffering in the world, we come to Jesus seeking the sustenance and life-giving water we all need. In a season of dry lands, parched throats, and a season that feels like we're in the desert, we come to Jesus who offers us the provision and life-giving water that we all need. And so, friends, I would just ask you this morning, wherever you're at, and invite you wherever you're at, what would be that one small step where you could just reorient yourself back to Jesus? He's the one that provides that life-giving water that we all seek and that we all crave. As we think about this, though, we've talked about partnership. We've been created for more, to partner with God. We've been talking about provision that we have been invited to enjoy and, and delight in God's own provision. But then the third thing I want to take a look at, choice. And what I mean by this is that we've been created to choose God's own wisdom, to step into that choice, to choose God's wisdom over and against all the other wisdoms that we might have on offer. Let's take a look at me with verse 15. Again, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what's interesting here is that here in Genesis 2, we have the first recorded conversation between God and humans. And the first recorded conversation between God and humans is about what to eat. And I find that interesting because it kind of reveals this aspect of our humanity that where we eat or what we eat from, so to speak, reveals where our hearts are at, reveals who we, who we trust and who we're going to for nourishment and sustenance. And it's also this reminder that as created in the image of God, as created creatures, we've been created as kind of hungry creatures, so to speak. That, that we need sustenance, that we need to keep coming back to some form of, of life-giving sustenance to continue our existence. And on a spiritual level, we've been created to come to, to God, to come to Jesus, to come to him again and again. But in particular, though, here in Genesis 2, the first humans are presented with this choice. They've been invited to eat from every tree, including the tree of life, but there's only one tree that they're not supposed to eat from, the tree of knowing good and, good and evil. 
Which the million dollar question is, what's so bad about the tree of knowing good and evil, right? You know, and there's, you know, a bunch of, you know, commentators have, you know, you read 10 stacks of books, you'll get, you know, 20 different opinions on what exactly is, is wrong with the tree of knowing good and evil. But I think kind of the best take at this is that the, the reason why God is saying to, to not eat of the tree of knowing good and evil, it's kind of this, almost like this symbolic way of saying that if the humans are to take from the tree of knowing good and evil, it's like they're taking wisdom into their own, own hands. They're taking good and evil into their own hands. Because as you read on throughout the scriptures, this pairing of good and evil is often associated with wisdom. Solomon, when he becomes king, God says, you know, ask whatever you want. And Solomon asked for wisdom that he might discern good and evil, the text says in 1 Kings. And so here in Genesis chapter 2, God is saying, do not reach and take. Because in Genesis 3, the humans are going to take from the tree. Do not reach and take to define wisdom on your own terms, to define good and evil on your own terms. No, trust me and my definition of what is good and not good. Because up through the narrative, up until this point, God has repeatedly declared, this is good, this is good, this is good. Going back to Genesis 1. And so humans are presented with this choice. Where will humans seek wisdom? Where will humans seek wisdom? Will they seek the things of this world and take into their own hands? And define good and evil for themselves, or will they trust God and his definition of what is good and not good? Which begs the question for us, whose wisdom are we seeking? Where are we seeking our own, perhaps, definition of good and not good? Where are we tempted to maybe redefine good and evil so it's convenient for me and my group at the expense of that other group over there? It's something to really consider, especially in a cultural moment like this, where it becomes very nebulous and very kind of, you know, everyone wants to define good and evil for themselves. For us, as followers of Jesus, I think of the line at the end of the book of Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will choose to, to trust and to follow after God and his wisdom. But here's the thing. We've been created for partnership. We've been created to enjoy God's provision. We've been created to choose and to seek wisdom, not from our own selves, but outside of ourselves, to trust God's wisdom. But here's the thing. God did not want humanity to do this alone. God did not want Adam to do this alone, which brings me to my fourth and final point, community. That we've been created for more. We've been created for community with one another. Take a look at me with verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now that phrase, a helper fit, we got to talk about this real quick. Sometimes in English you might have this connotation that a helper is something kind of less than or not as important. And that's very clearly not what the text is saying. This word helper in Hebrew is azer. And it oftentimes is associated with describing God in the Bible. God is considered a helper. And oftentimes, especially through the Psalms, God is an azer or a helper in like this warrior sense. That God, just like how we sang, God is the one fighting on behalf of Israel. Fighting on behalf of Israel in battle. So if anything, this term does not mean weakness. It means or implies some form of strength. But that also this word fit or suitable, depending on your English translation. So it's a helper fit or helper suitable. This word suitable is also important. Where this speaks of this idea of something that is like but also different or against. So we have kind of this, this gap. The first time God says that it's not good is here in verse 18. And what is needed is a helper, someone that is able to come alongside that is both like 
and different. And so the narrative continues on. This is what happens. Verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. And here we have, here's, here's Adam, here's the man, partnering with God. God is, or Adam is naming the animals. God is naming the creatures. Just like God was naming and declaring things in Genesis 1, here is this, kind of this first instance where Adam is partnering with God. I mean, so far, so good, right? This partnership's off to a great start. But then we come back to verse 20, and it's almost as if as the animals are coming to Adam, there hasn't been a helper that's suitable, a helper that is like and different, that, that meets the standard that God has. Because the problem gets repeated again in verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So this is what happens in verse 21. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. In the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, quick side note here, that word rib, I'm sorry, it doesn't actually mean rib like in the anatomical, biological sense. It's, it's actually the standard word for side. And this is important because what's being depicted here is here is woman being created from the side of man. And what we think is happening here is that here's a picture of how man and woman are to function together, side by side. Both equal and dignified, both together imaging God, partnering with God in God's world. And this is what the text is saying is that here is like this first marriage ceremony, if you will, that God brings the woman to the man, and the man says, this is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then you get to verse 24, and the narrator kind of whispers in her ear and says, you know what, this isn't just like a story that happened way back when, a one-off thing. No, this is a story for all of time. That's why verse 24 says this, therefore, it's like the narrator is kind of stepping back and saying, this is for all times and all places, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, Jesus interpreted this passage the exact same way. In Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, Jesus quotes from verse 24 as like this standard. This is how it's meant to be. This is God's heart and God's design. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So here's the picture that Adam, the human, is created for a community to be together with Eve in partnership with God, enjoying God's provision, choosing to follow God and his wisdom. I mean, there's a lot going on in this passage, right? I mean, you have these trees and rivers, God forming man out of dirt, woman coming from the side of man. I mean, how are you doing with this? There's a lot here. You know, again, we've talked about how we've been created to partner with God. We've talked about how we've been created to enjoy the provision of God and to choose the wisdom of God and to be in community with one another. Now, as we think about this for our own everyday life, and as I was thinking about this myself, Kind of how to land this for us in our day. One thing just really stood out, and it's that concept of God's provision. Because without God's provision, you don't get the other things. You don't get the partnership and the vocation. You don't get the community and the, the relationships with other people. It all starts as God, of, as, as God being the source of all of these good things. That the, the picture we have in Eden is that God is at the center giving and creating life. Is God is the one that is providing all of these good things for the humans. 
And so I guess I just have one question for you this week to think and ponder. Where have you experienced God's provision? Where have you experienced God's provision? Think about that. Especially over the past year, where it's very easy to think about all the things that have gone wrong and all the negativity. And yes, there's a, a place for that for sure, to, 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 to lament and all that sort of stuff. But to really think about where have you experienced God's provision? Maybe as you think about that, honestly, you're, you're a, a part of that response is you recognize that there's some gaps perhaps in God's provision. You're expecting or hoping for God to provide in a certain area. And I would say this, that as you think about and meditate on, God, where have I experienced your gifts? Where have I experienced your provision? And also at the same time, where might have you experienced or are hoping there's like a gap that God has to come in and close and God has to provide? Both the gifts and the gaps. And let those two, where God's provision and his gifts and those gaps where you're, you're aching, you're crying out, may both of those be sort of like a trail of breadcrumbs back to adoration and worship of our God. That God is, as James 1 says, the giver of everything, good and perfect, comes down from above, from him. You know, for my own life, there's, there's ways where I've experienced both God's provision and God's gifts, and where there's areas where this past year where there's, like, there's these gaps, where I'm crying out, God, I, I, I know you're the provider. I know it all depends on you. You know, thinking about how God has provided in his provision, I just was thinking about this this morning. You know, last, yesterday I had the, the chance to have, a, you know, a really great conversation with some really close friends that we haven't really talked with in, in, I don't know, about four or five weeks or so. Just because with COVID and Christmas and all that. And just thinking about the gift of community, the gift of relationship. And how it's so easy to kind of take that for granted. That, that God is the one that has provided that. Think about how God has provided for us as a church for Wellspring, even in this crazy year. That God has provided more than I could ever as Ephesians 3 says, think, ask, or imagine. And so there's these gifts that, that, like a trail of breadcrumbs, leading me back to him for deeper intimacy and connection. And at the same time, honestly, there's some gaps. There's some areas where I'm not totally sure how God is going to provide. We, we recently found out that we have... And, and, we found that we, had to, we were going to have to move. Not, not out of PG. We're, we're going to be here. That's <laughs> so scary. But our landlord wants to sell our house. And it's just kind of created this kind of stressful thing in our family. Like, okay, we have to move and figure out where we're going to find another house and all this. And so there's this gap here. And so both of these things, seeing God as provider, there's ways where I've experienced the, the positive side of that. And there's other ways where there's a little bit of a gap. And I, I say that perhaps as you think about that this week giving you space to be honest about where there might be a gap and where you can delight and praise him for the gifts. And may both of those, like I said, be like this trail of breadcrumbs back to Jesus, our provider, our source, who gives us living water. You know, let me, let me pray for us as we, as we close our time. God, we do thank you that in spite of all of the craziness of this world, in spite of all of just the uncertainty of this time, that we can come back to your word. That we can stand on the promises and the assurances of what your word teaches us about you, about us and our world. And God, wherever we find ourselves this morning, 
as we're seeking you, as we're desiring with everything we have to, to know you in a deeper way, God, I pray that you would draw near. God, that you would reach out and encourage us and strengthen us and reveal yourself to us. So God, we ask, we ask God that you would, you would do that in our lives. We thank you, God, again for who you are, your character, that God, you are the one who has provided. You are the one who has given your life for us. And may we never forget that. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in your name.